We are continuing today in our God's Not Red Sermon series, which we are going to be discussing by reading about God in Scripture. I know, it's a fun misnomer of a title, but it's going to be great. But before we begin, we're going to talk about this today, talking donkeys and talking ghosts and the hope of the inexplicable. Now, it's worth noting, I... Uh, just a small thing, I have this fun little Bible software that we use whenever I'm doing a lot of Bible studies and things, and one of the cool features of it is it pulls up sermons of any verses that you're looking through, uh, so you can actually check and see what other people have said about it, and you can usually tell how popular passages are by how many sermons are available through those. Uh, and while there were several from people who are preaching today, all of my stuff from like John Wesley or Christendom or uh, Dwight Moody or, oh uh, goodness, who else was there? Uh, Spurgeon, like about all these people's sermons. And like, they don't talk about these. They're going to be fun ones. I'm excited. Be ready, all right? But before we even begin the service, before we begin the sermon, we have to begin with some story time. <gasps> Look at those people. Aw, small thing, just in case you're wondering, one of those is actually me. One of those skinny people. So, this guy right here, that's me. This is me, I think, my junior year of high school, possibly my senior. Uh, and these are my two best friends. This guy here is Dave, and this guy here is also Dave, right? So it's Chris, Dave, Dave. And that was pretty confusing for some people, because this is, this is Chris Dewar, this is David Reese, this is David Roberts, and it's just super confusing. So to make it easier, uh, we had Chris and Dave, and so no one would get confused, they called this guy Dewey, which, you know... Chris Dewar and Dewey, they kind of just made it worse, right? Now we're even more confused. They said that because they said he looked like Dewey from Scream whenever he grew his fake little mustache he had for a while. Yeah. Anywho, these are my two best friends growing up, right? And in order to give you background, the story is not going to cover this guy very much. Though this was the guy that I spent most of my time with. He was my roommate through college. He was my best friend since second grade. We're going to talk instead about this guy here who, though you wouldn't know it now, Marine, uh, ex-Marine, did three tours of duty overseas, super buff, like, little different looking than this. But we used to have some fun games we would play together, right? And one game we would play together is this. All of us, for some reason, we were not the smartest of drivers or the best of precision drivers, we would say. So we used to have this fun game where we would try to park as close to each other as possible and uh, park as close to buildings as possible. And we would try to block each other in. And I remember this one day, my favorite was whenever he was like, I'm going to win. Because this guy had parked right next to one side of a building. Our school had like a big old L shape, right? So David Re Roberts, Dewey, parked, parallel parked right up against the building. So it's right here. His car was like right here, like right at the top. And there was this open space down here. And he's like, I can show you how much better I am. So he parallel him parked himself back in. Said his bumper was basically touching the school on both sides. And so I just parked right next to his car and blocked him in. So he was stuck in his car and couldn't get out. It was fun. We left him there. <laughs> he ended up lying down the window and crawling out between our cars. I say that for this reason. I'm going to tell you a bit of a story that is a bit unbelievable. If you can guess about how good of drivers we were, and you're going to wonder why people would doubt the story happened, okay? So one time, I'm in the car with this guy, and we are riding down the road. And we're driving, probably going slightly too fast, probably listening to music a little too loud. And then just fast forward a little bit, we get home, we're trying to explain to his parents what had happened. And uh, you see, he now had this, like, 
obvious place where his car had been hit by something. And he was trying to explain why it wasn't his fault. And no one believed him. But here's the story from that point on. We're driving down the road, and we come to a stop sign, and we stop. And we're not moving. And all of a sudden, you just hear, and something fall. And we looked out the passenger window. And he said, did I just get hit by a dog? Yeah, he had. He had stopped his car, and a dog had sprinted out and just slammed into the side of his car and fallen over. He did not hit a dog. A dog hit him, right? And dogs don't do that. This dog did. The only reason why I believe that's why his car had a thing on the side is because I was sitting there when it happened. But imagine you were his parents, and he comes home with his car, and there's a dent in the side, and you say, what happened? I know you play these stupid games. Did you hit someone's car? Did someone hit you? And he's like, no, 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 a dog hit me. Pretty unbelievable, right? We all have some relatively, like it's not the most far out ever unbelievable story. It just sounds just slightly dumb enough to not be true, right? Do you guys have any stories like that? What are your favorite unbelievable stories? You got hit by a deer? That is not awesome, but also awesome. A deer hit, um, so someone believes me. Okay. So fun story, we were having this conversation. I actually call my friends sometimes when I'm telling stories about the past, A, to see if they're okay about us telling them, and B, to make sure I didn't get anything wrong, right? Like, that, this actually happened. And so he's relating the story to me over the phone. And you hear his wife in the background like, you hit a dog? No, a dog hit me. I can't believe you hit a dog. I didn't hit a dog. It was great. Anywho, sometimes unbelievable things happen. We all have unbelievable things happen in our lives, right? But also, uh, everyone has stories that are somewhat, in some way, shape, or form, unbelievable. And Scripture is no different. There are some stories in Scripture that are somewhat just unbelievable. How unbelievable, you would say? Well, it's this point. There are people who are considered today as like founders of rational thought or rational thinking or awesome thinking. Uh, some people in like our history in the U.S. would be people like Thomas Jefferson. Everyone loves him. Smart guy, wrote the Declaration of Independence, had a lot to do with the way the Constitution was drafted, a lot to do with the way that our actual nation came together. Good guy, really smart. This was his Bible. Thomas Jefferson was such a rationalist he hated the thought of the miraculous. So he literally went through and would cut out portions of scripture that he thought were not true because they were too unbelievable. And we do this sometimes ourselves, though we may not go quite that far. There may be parts that we just simply ignore, don't talk about, dismiss, don't think of, or just write off as, now nah, that's, that's just myth or things that happened, Right? We have a tendency to do this to ourselves. And today we're going to focus on two of the stories that might be ones that people just completely dismiss. The first one is this. It's Balaam's donkey. Who here knows the story of Balaam's donkey? Popularly retold in the Disney classic Shrek. No? Okay. Right there. Yeah, it's just basically the same thing they did with all the other fairy tales. Just took them super out of context, add one or two things in. Close enough, right? Anywho. Balaam's donkey is found in the story of, in, in Numbers, chapters 22, 21 through 39. And we'll read this section in a minute. But before I dive too far into it, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to talk about a talking donkey. But you should probably know why that donkey was talking to begin with. 
You see, Israel had been coming into the promised land. It was coming through and starting to defeat all of the outlying people before they came into Cana. Their military was doing super well, knocking people back and forth everywhere they went. And some of the other people who were around were a little scared of them. And there was this one king. I think his name was Balak. I can't pronounce his name right. But he was scared of the Israelites. And he could stand from his territory on top of a mountain and look down to where the Israelites had encamped. And the Israelites were basically saying, now he won't come get you. But they might have been willing to come get him, right? He didn't know what was happening. He was a little scared. So he did what a normal, rational person would do. He called for a uh, person who was a professional cursor or blesser from like 400 miles away to come on down and curse the Israelites. He called and paid him to do it. Ba Balaam was a professional cursor. He was well-known and renowned for his ability to call down curses or blessings because he knew about all the other gods and everyone that he could talk to to have things happen, right? So he sends his emissaries and says, I would like you to come and curse the Israelites. And he says, I don't know if you have enough money, basically. Let me sit and enjoy your hospitality for a while, but I don't know if you have enough to make me do it. Then they came and asked him again, and this time he actually got a message from the Lord that said, no, go. Go ahead and do it. Go down there and talk to the Israelites, but you're not going to curse them. You're going to say what I tell you to say. And that's the beginning of the story. He gets ready to leave. So Balaam rose in the morning and sat out his donkey and went off with the princes of Moab, the kingdom that was worried. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into a field. So donkey sees person with sword, avoids sword. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall, again to avoid the sword, and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall and crushed it. So he hit her again. He struck her again. And then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. This guy might have a bit of an anger problem. When then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, female donkey, by the way, don't forget, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. Not, you can talk! <laughs> and the donkey said to Balaam, I am, not, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it, not my, ha is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no, you've been a pretty cool donkey. Kind of quiet, subdued. And then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. 
When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, the border formed by Anorn, at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send you, send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Then Balaam went to Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce those words. And we're going to end that story there. Okay? Now we've got story number two, which is the story of Samuel's ghost. So who here knows who Samuel was? Samuel was a prophet of God, actually kind of the final judge of God too. So he was like the person who spanned between the book of Judges and the books of the Kings. He spanned between those two types of rulers. And Samuel was a man who knew God and listened to him and served him from the day he was born. He lived in the temple and he served him. And then he went and prophesied. Now Samuel anointed two different people as king, as king over the course of his life. The first person he anointed was a man named Saul, who we all have probably heard of. He was a king uh, who uh, was not the worst guy in the world for the most part of his life, until he started trying to randomly kill people, whatever. But he was a man who was anointed by God to be the first king over Israel. And that's a pretty big deal, right? First king over all of Israel. But Saul had this nasty habit of, you know, just super ignoring God sometimes and not listening whatsoever, not doing what he said. So eventually God anointed another person, David, to be his king. So there were two anointed kings running around at the same time. David, we know from the story of like David and Goliath, how he slew the Philistine gladiator, allowed the Israelite army to rout them and win the battle. If you don't know the rest of the story, he then became one of Saul's bodyguards. Saul tried to kill him a bunch of times. David defected and ran away to the point where he started serving in the armies of those who opposed Israel to the point where he became the bodyguard of a different king, not an Israelite king. And he was serving in things like wars with the Philistines against the Israelites. See, during one of these final battles, Saul is having an issue. He wants someone to tell him that the next battle is going to happen. Everything's going to be okay. He just needs someone to tell him everything's going to be okay. God is with you. Everything's great. But darn it, there were no prophets willing to tell him that for some reason. There were no soothsayers who could tell him either. And at this point, Samuel had died. So the man who Saul knew would be willing to speak the word of God to him was dead. And he didn't know what to do. Now, prior to this, Saul had enacted some of the reforms God had called for, including things like kicking those who were people who were diviners or people who were willing to call up spirits. And he kicked them out of the kingdom or killed them as necessary to remove people who were trying to do these sort of things within Israel. So Saul, darn it, when he wanted to talk to Samuel, had to go pretty darn far away. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. He'd already done so. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shumnium. And Saul gathered all of Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. 
And when the Lord inquired, and Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Which, if you know anything about the way God talks to people in the Old Testament, these are the three ways. You hear a word from a prophet, you receive a dream that is then interpreted and you can understand, or you see Urum and Thurum, which were parts of the breastplate of God. And I don't even know how they work because no one does, but basically it was a way to actually request God answer yes or no questions, interestingly enough. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Yes, Endor. So Saul disguised himself, put on other garments, and went. He and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? She's pretty smart. Why would you have me try and do this? This guy's going to kill me if I do, not knowing she was talking to that guy. But Saul swore to her by the Lord, consider that concept. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. Uh, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Just pause right there. One of my favorite parts of this story is it straight up goes, bring up for me Samuel. And she's like, okay, and then does so. And then she freaks out. Why do you think someone whose practice was bringing up ghosts would freak out when she saw a ghost? What do you think the chances were she was super successful at her past attempts? So usually people who were doing this in these kind of days, if you actually look through the rituals and things they would do, they would dig a big old pit, and they would jump down to the pit and say some words, and then the spirit would speak through that person to the person who was talking. Normally she would be the one who is Samuel. But all of a sudden there's this other dude there. She didn't expect. Then she realizes exactly who it is and what's happening because she's like, oh, this Samuel. I've heard about this guy. Wait a minute. I know who you are too. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Ooh. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed down with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord has given Israel also into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Just real quick, when a ghost tells you tomorrow you'll be with me, that's pretty scary. Guess what happened in the next battle? Saul died, along with his son Jonathan, along with a lot of his army. Everyone died. Strange enough, David was sad about this, because David still saw Saul as one of the anointed of God's, 
a man who no hand should be raised against. But man, what do we do with stories about talking donkeys and ghosts coming up? How do we deal with these? What do we take from them, right? There's a couple of things that you can pull from this. So what do we do with stories like this? Here's a takeaway. If everything your God does seems personally, personally believable and rational and understandable to you, your God might be too small. Just kicking that out right there. If everything that you ever read makes sense to you perfectly, then you are as smart as God. Sometimes he has to act in ways that you don't understand or can't expect. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't really be God then. Right? So when we read stories like this that are super unbelievable, just remember that concept, first of all. A, God is bigger than me. He can do things that I can't understand, and that's okay. Okay? That's one thing. It's one thing. And there's takeaway two. This is the one that I really take away from these two stories. God does not need your perfection to ensure his plans. He doesn't. Let's look at the two people that these stories focused around, right? The first person was Balaam, this dude who literally served whichever gods were necessary, and he was well known for knowing any ritual any god needed to do anything so that he could curse people himself or bless people himself. That's weird. Bit of an interesting uh, job to get into, right? How does one become a professional cursor, I ask? Because I feel as if sometimes I could probably be pretty good at that. No? No? Uh, huh? It's okay. Be, because I, I can be spiteful and mean sometimes. Does that work? Okay, why, why? <laughs> I am unqualified for that job, at least. That's good to know. Okay. Oh. <laughs> I am not well qualified for that job. I would hope. I would hope. Yes. <sighs> Balaam was not a perfect man. Weird guy for God to choose to proclaim his word to this king who was trying to come against Israel. Weird guy for God to say, you're going to bless Israel, and that blessing is going to matter. And he does. He gives like four oracles later on, all of which super point to how much God has his hand over Israel and is protecting them, and God's will will be done. Uh, if I can remember to pull it up later, we'll read one of them. God doesn't need your perfection to ensure it. Think about the other guy. This is Saul, right? Literally a man who was given over the nation of Israel to lead, to serve, to shepherd, who was placed in charge of them, who they were placed into his care. And he kind of messed up big time, a bunch of times, right? Did God need Saul to be perfect to make sure God's plan would come into place? No. God did it anyway, right? God doesn't need your perfect, your perfection to ensure what he does matters. I can trust God to make his will perfectly known to me if I need to know it as well. 
That's another big takeaway from these that I take too, right? Because these two guys didn't know God perfectly, but both of them received a message from a very unusual source that explained to them exactly what God's plan was. Balaam learned that he was to bless Israel, and that Israel would succeed regardless of his blessing. And Samuel had to learn, or Saul had to learn, that by goodness, God's not happy with you. And Saul wasn't looking to hear that message. Whenever he says, I have received no message from prophet, do you think it was really he had heard nothing? Nothing? Uh, no, he probably had kept hearing things he didn't like. Yeah. So he kept trying to search and search and find one that he would like. To the point that he went to people who were completely antithetical to what God was teaching Israel to do, to ask one of them to get someone to tell him something he would like. And he still heard again something he didn't like. Saul didn't need... Saul uh, <laughs> received knowledge of what God was going to do pretty darn well, right? I can trust that God will make his will known to me if I need to know it, right? That's my big thing for this one, guys. I know it sounds dumb, but if I... Who here has ever struggled with this concept? Have you ever worried that something you were supposed to do was right? Yeah. Have you ever worried about whether or not, if you thought there was something God wanted you to do, whether or not you were actually hearing him appropriately and correctly? Yeah. Have you ever thought, what if I'm wrong? And I'll break everything if I'm wrong. You don't have to worry too bad. Not because you can't mess stuff up. Sure, we can mess stuff up. Saul messed stuff up greatly, right? But Saul did not mess stuff up to the point that God's plan could not occur. You cannot mess stuff up to the point that God cannot occur. He will not let you mess up his will. May not be fun the way you get there, but you're not going to break his plan. If something you were going to do was so outrageous it would break his plan, he can make sure you hear that message. He can send a prophet. He can send a donkey. He can send a friend, a follower of Christ, a non-believer. You'll hear it, right? You'll hear it. Which, by the way, this sounds strange. That actually helps me out a lot. Because I can trust God to do his will, even if I'm not perfect. Right? God does not need or expect me to be perfect for his will to be done. He doesn't need it. Does that seem weird that that to me is one of the most freeing statements I have ever heard in my life? Okay. Like, oh, I don't have to be perfect. And I don't have to be because he is. He perfectly does his will. I don't need to perfectly do it. This frees me up to trust that he will make his will happen. And all I have to do is try to serve him. It is such a freeing thought, I can't even describe it. Because even if I fail while trying, I can trust that he can overcome my failure. I can trust that he can be bigger than me. Because guess what? He is. 
this leads me to my takeaway number three. I am not the center of my story. God is. In the two stories we read, we think of the heroes or the people who are the primary people that are being worked on or discussing or talking in this story as Balaam and as Saul or Samuel, right? But in reality, they aren't the center of those stories. Balaam is a man who was an instrument used by God to proclaim something that God had already decided to do. And God was the one at the center of that story. And God and his choice to serve and deliver his people was the center of that story. Not Balaam, God. In the story of Saul and Samuel, Saul is not the center of that story. He is not the protagonist. He is not the one that is doing all of the work or doing everything. God is. Samuel's not either. God is, right? And all we get to see are these two people who are working through this mess of what it means to be people in the middle of God's story. You and I are not the center of this story. God is. And we just get to work through the mess of what it means to be people at the center of God's story, not the center of people in the midst of God's story. Does that make sense? And this sounds dumb, but that means one thing that we can do as people is remember where our focus is supposed to be. If my life is all about me and the things that I am doing and hearing and learning and saying and becoming, I'm the hero of that story. That's not a good story. I don't make a good protagonist. My story is about Jesus and what he is doing and what he has done. He's supposed to be the one in the middle of it. Just like God was in the middle of Balaam's story and like God was in the middle of Saul and Samuel's story. Just like God's will was in the middle of both those stories. He was the one who was actually working through all of those. So he's to come back in. God does not need my perfection or even expect me to be perfect. I don't need to be perfect. I just need to try. And then we step into this concept. If God doesn't need my perfect understanding of his will for his will to be done, then what do we do whenever we don't have perfect understanding of what his will is or of what he's doing or of what he's saying or of what he's teaching? You guys ever run into that too? Like, I just wish I knew more. I know some, I wish I knew more. I wish I could learn more. I wish I could understand more. There's a guy in the New Testament whom I absolutely love because Jesus is talking to him. He comes to Jesus and requests some help. One of his kids, I believe, is dying and he needs help. And Jesus says, if you believe, what you want to have happen will happen. And his response to Jesus is what? Say it again. Bam. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. This is where we sit as followers of Jesus, right? If we don't understand what he is saying or what he is doing, but we trust him to the best of our ability, we can say, I believe this much. Help me where I'm not believing. I trust this much. Help me where I'm not trusting. I understand this much. Help me where I'm not understanding. If you ask for wisdom, he gives wisdom graciously. He promises that. If you ask for understanding, he will grant understanding. We just have to remember that he's the one that matters, not us. So what does it look like in our lives to see God speak miraculously? Because sometimes, guys, he still does so today, right? He still does 
tell his own story today. He still does make himself the center of the story today. Here's a little one. Uh, again, not the most awesome, basically functional equivalent in the grand scheme of things as dude who got hit by a dog. Right? Not the biggest or most awesome or miraculous story in the world, but just something slightly incredible. I have another pair of friends. And yes, these are real people. They have to be Jane and John Doe right now uh, because they don't mean to use their real names or whatever. They don't want fame or yelled at. Whichever direction the story goes. See, my friends got married relatively young. Loved Jesus with all their hearts. Served them best they could. If you want to know how devoted and loving they are, you should know this. The first time they kissed each other was whenever they kissed at their wedding ceremony. Like, that's pretty darn devoted right there, right? He wanted his first kiss to be with his wife. She wanted her first kiss to be with her husband. So, they, when they were first married, had this heart, this call to adopt. They thought they were going to be adopting kids, and they thought they wanted to. And it's really a big thing for really young people to decide on, but they were really feeling this way, right? And then they got pregnant uh, with twins, and that feeling kind of went away for a little bit. <laughs> Just kicking that one out there, right? Uh, see, their twins, when they were born, were born slightly premature and with a myriad of health issues. Uh, their twins are about 10 years old now. In the first eight-ish years of their lives, they had 20 surgeries apiece. Okay? Uh, they had a numerous health issues. And one of these issues was an issue with their jaws. They were undeveloped or not developing properly, and so they weren't hinging properly, and so their jaw was basically sunken back into their face, right? It made us they were unable to eat. They couldn't latch on very well whenever they were attempting to drink milk, and they certainly couldn't eat solid foods until their jaws were able to be uh, put back into place or closer to how place it's supposed to go, right? They had to have feeding tubes put in and fed through feeding tubes as they were kids. And this was, kids are doing quite well right now, awesome, rambunctious, just like kids are supposed to be. But they had some hardships through their early years, right? Goodness. And after eight-ish years, they began to feel as if they were supposed to be adopting again, which was interesting. See, one of our other friends from high school ended up moving overseas and working in a missions field in India where they're working in uh, orphanages with kids who are unwanted and uncared for. And they serve the best they can. Now my friends began to feel as if maybe we're supposed to adopt. Look what our friend is doing. They're working with orphans every day. There's more that we can do. We can help in some way, right? But they didn't know what to do. And they were on their boards one day for kids who have this issue. Because they now go on there to help support other parents and whatnot who are going through similar things as their kids did with this jaw issue. And someone actually posted in there and said, Hi, uh, we work for an organization that works with kids uh, that have issues of this nature. Uh, and we're trying to get some advice on what we should do. And so they offered as much advice as they could. And then they said, all right, so now the only problem we're having is they're ready to schedule the surgery to put in the feeding tube, and we have the surgeons lined up, we have this lined up, we have this lined up, but we're missing the feeding tubes. We don't have the actual tubes that are necessary to be installed and the things that are supposed to go with them. My friends had an extra tube in their closet. And then they found out that the agency they were working for was the orphanage that our friend worked with in India. This girl was in her care, and they didn't know. 
with the new people who were going over to visit. So they were able to pack the extra feeding tube in with this flight that was going over to give to this girl to help her process what she needed nutrient-wise. Surgery was a success. Girl received her tube. Then they adopted her and brought her over. She's been a part of their family for about eight months now. Took about two years for the whole process to go through. But just imagine the string of events that had to go through their lives to come to the point where they could adopt this little girl and be able to provide her with the support she needs because they've been through it before, right? They were perfectly positioned to provide what this girl needs. And she was perfectly positioned to be where God wanted her to be and where God wanted her to be for them. He's awesome. He does things all the time. He knew that they knew that they were supposed to be adopting. They knew that that was something that God had called them to do. They understood it. They didn't know what it was going to look like or what it was supposed to be or what his timing would look like. He made it pretty darn clear, right? How does that get dropped on you? And you not say, okay, this is probably more than just me, right? There's lots of kids and lots of organizations in the world, and it's just weird they just got dropped on top of each other. God does that sort of stuff sometimes. Has there ever been a time whenever you have been or learned something inexplicable that seemed like it was what God was calling you to do, and you just had to do it? You couldn't help it. When? Come on, give me one. Do it. It was banana, banana pie, all around. This is gonna be a, just to check real quick. You went to school for cooking, yeah, for baking, yeah. So this ministry wrong number called a person who is a professional baker looking for someone to bake pies for their outreach event. That's pretty awesome. I will tell that person who, if I ever talk to them, that you consider them a donkey. Oh, <laughs> <Aww. laughs> hey, we can. This can still work out, just so you know. We have heard. No, okay. <laughs> that is an awesome story. Anything else? Anything like that?
random person just waving to you at six o'clock in the morning <laughs> on the side of the road. <sighs> Unbelievable things happen in our lives, right? Every now and then we get to see the incredibleness of what God does in this world. Unbelievable things happen in Scripture, some things that we just can't even begin to understand it often. But I just want you to real quick process what do we actually believe, right? Because whenever you consider this, because this is what we believe. We believe in a God who has created all things, who saw the ways in which we broke creation and distanced ourselves from him, and who loved us enough to actually take on humanity, who lived among us, loved us, served us, and died for us, who reconciled us to himself, and who resurrected himself to defeat death and break everything that we broke, re-break the brokenness and make it whole again. He broke the brokenness we brought in this world, and he ushered in his kingdom into this world. And he will return at some point to see that kingdom brought to perfect fruition, and who invites us, these broken, imperfect creatures, to take part in building his kingdom on a daily basis with him until he comes to finish it. That's a pretty unbelievable story. And that's the story he's writing and that we're allowed to take part in. So as we wrestle with the inexplicable, as we wrestle with the unbelievable, let us remember that we wrestle with him. And he tends to win wrestling matches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love the fact that we cannot understand you perfectly. We love the fact that you are bigger than us, that you are greater than us, that you are more holy than us, and that, Lord, you are better than we are. We love the fact that your story is at the center of everything we see and do. And, Lord, we pray that you would allow us to recognize your story as we move through our days. Father, may we not falsely make ourselves the focus, but may we instead focus on who you are and what you've done. May we trust you, may we serve you, may we love you, and may we follow you. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Let's pass this on over to Jake. Okay. This mic won't, that mic is not going through the system. That mic is just going through Okay. Who are you?
Would you stand with me as we sing another song of praise together this morning? From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creations revealing your majesty. From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature unique in the all its cleaning, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All powerful, untamable, awestruck, we fall to our knees as we proclaim you are amazing God who has told every lightning bolt where it should go or seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow who imagined the sun and gave source to it Yet conceals it to bring us the coolness of night. None can fathom, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All powerful, untamable, awestruck we to our knees as we humbly proclaim you are amazing God you are amazing God indescribable uncontainable you place the stars in the sky and you know them by name you are amazing, God. Incomparable, unchangeable. You see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. You are amazing, God. You are amazing, God. Indescribable, uncontainable, you place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All powerful, untamable, awestruck, we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim. You are amazing.
you are so much bigger than our conceptions of you, so much bigger than who we think you are. Lord, thank you that you are miraculous, that you, every day your plans are still working. You still walk us through things. You still work in wondrous, amazing ways that we simply cannot explain except for your goodness, except for your love, except that you are all-powerful, that you are all-knowing, that you love us and you walk with us. Lord, as we go from here, may we remember who you are. May we share your love with others. May we be part of your plan. Lord, use us as your hands, as your feet. Help us to serve and love others as you have loved us. We praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, one quick announcement before we go. If you are taking part in the Pentecost Choir, if you are a part of that, your music for it is in the office on the table. Please feel free to grab it, right? And if you are running slides for it, please feel free to grab it as well, okay? Yeah? All right. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May his face shine upon us, that his ways may be known on earth, his salvation among all nations. Go forth and be the church. Have a great week. Uh, so Dan or Dan? Ken. Right, Dan?